After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, guys, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly on to you. I haven't skipped a beat using Mint Mobile services. I have a great service even when I'm traveling for over less than 70% of what I was paying before. Listen to Uncle Chael and say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash chael. That's mintmobile.com slash chael. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash chael. $45 upfront payment required. That's equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your first stop for the best in Western style. And by the way, you don't have to be into the Western look to grab a good-looking pair of boots. I recently got a pair of ostrich skin round-tip boots, and I'm warm with my suit. These boots are so versatile that I can throw them on with a full head-to-toe suit. And Anthony Smith came right up to me and he's asking me where I got them. Well, I told him the only place to get them, Tacovas. And they have a seasonal limited edition offering. It's right now, this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, accessory, and more. My wife just surprised me with the ostrich wallet and a belt for my birthday, in case you've seen me. I feel like I look pretty sharp in it. I truly do. And Tacova's has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary beverage or two, and shop for new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience quite like it. If you can't make it into the store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your favorite pair of boots today. What's happening, guys? Happy Wednesday. And 
thank you for joining another special episode of your welcome i hope y'all had a great weekend coming up on today's show we're gonna look ahead to ufc 276 that's in a couple weeks by talking about adesanya and sean o'malley who will both be featured on that card but before i get to all that i want to look back on the big storylines from ufc's weekend in austin texas cater versus emmett guys what do you think what do you think? And I'm talking about the decision. Did you see it that way? I predicted for you guys, I'll give myself a little credit because I don't get to do this a lot, but I, I predicted Emmett, right? And I predicted Emmett for a couple of reasons, most of them intangibles. First off, I'm not sure you guys know how good Emmett is. Now, this is last week. I think now that you say Emmett is the closest thing to Volkanovsky that that division has, truly. And I don't just mean good. Maybe he is the second best guy in the world. Maybe he's the best guy in the world. I'm not talking about that. But the way that he fights. I'm talking about being a big, strong guy that's got incredible endurance. That can use the wrestling offensively or defensively, but he prefers to use the hands. And when he hits you, it hurts. And he's a great competitor. Emmett really is. If this guy's just breaking on your radar, you guys are just going, hey, who's this guy that's in a main event? I guess he trains a little bit at alpha male. You're missing the Emmett, man. This guy's solid. He's very good. He's very tough. He's very durable. He reminds me a lot of Volkanovsky. I've got to make that comparison. So you got him in there, and he's taking on Cater. Now, Cater is fast, and he's clever. We know how tough he is, and we know how powerful his hands are. Can he defensively wrestle or offensively wrestle when he needs to? Is that what he's going to choose to do? Because he usually chooses to stand up and bang. I just think that Emmett has a power. Might change Cater's mind. I'm giving you the lead into the fight. I'm taking it back to what we talked about before the contest happened. Because we had a lot of that right. The endurance for both guys. The grit, the toughness, the, the, the entry into the five-round club. Both of them passed. And it was basically all stand-up. I mean, whatever grappling or wrestling, they're on their feet. They're trading a couple of positions. I mean, this was a brawl. This was a boxing match that got dirty. You might have seen a knee, you might have seen an elbow and a kick here and there, but these two are out there boxing, and you did have a wonderful technical display by Cater. You had incredible speed and combinations by Cater, but you had a raw grit power by Emmett. We see a lot of guys that do what Cater did, right? I mean, over the years, we've seen some really good fighters come along, and that's what I'm saying about Cater. He understands the sport. He can move. It's a thing of beauty. He can slip. He can touch the body. He can touch the head. He's got good forward. He's a really good fighter. We don't see a lot of guys like Emmett that have the power, can land the shots. Oh, and by the way, don't have to knock you out in the first round. A lot of those power guys, and I can even tie that back to Iron Mike Tyson. He's going to get you out of there. He's going to hurt you, but it's going to be early. He's going to do it early because he's going to fade over the course of the night. Mike Tyson very famously told Joe Rogan, if you try to win by knockout, you are not going to win a decision. That is extremely true. Volkanovsky may be one of the rare exceptions to that analogy, and I think now you're starting to see it from Emmett. And I'm, I'm giving Emmett high praise, aren't I? I'm putting Emmett in there with Volkanovsky, but guys, that might just be what it takes. It truly just might be what it takes. I don't know how good Emmett is. I don't know what the ceiling is. I do know if you want to start talking about him being a number one contender, you might be getting ahead of yourself, but one fight away, no, I, that sounds like we're in line. Emmett's next fight potentially being a number one contender's match, that sounds right to me. 
I want to talk about the decision, though. Did you see it this way? I have no problem with it. By no means do I call mistake being made. If you would have asked me after the fight, after I watched it, and prior to the announcement who won, I would have told you Cater. I thought Cater won. I thought a lot of those power shots that Emmett threw landed on the gloves. I thought a lot of them did. I thought Cater's speed was good. I thought he would get credit for that. But I, I don't I don't disagree with it. And I love I love these matches, by the way. This is just a personal note, but when, when I don't know who won, I, I think Cater won. And then it's a split decision. I feel like I'm even smarter. I have never predicted split decision in my life, including when a fight's over and I'm with a group of people. Who do you think won? Split decision, Holloway, like, never. But sometimes maybe I should, because there's really close ones. And I should know and juxtapose that two judges somewhere of the three are going to have ascending answers. But I want to know what you guys think. Because we've been discussing judges, and we had a wonderful fight in terms of it being close between Santos and Valentina, but per the unified rules, of which, say, the first criteria is effective striking, it greatly favored Valentina. And at the end of the night, she got the nod. Effective striking in this contest, who did it greatly favor? You had speed and combinations versus power and grit. That's a hard one to judge because you don't have a whole huge focus group. Those power punchers like Emmett get the guy out of there. They don't go all 25 minutes unless you're Volkanovsky, which is why I keep making the same comparison. Excellent fight. I got no problem with it. If you wanted to ask me who I thought won before I, I had the knowledge of oh, Cater, that's who I thought won. Awesome contest. Who do you guys think is next for Emmett? And when I tell you, if I were to tell you, Emmett's next fight will be a number one contender's fight. I'm not telling you who. I'm not giving you more info than that. I'm just making a broad statement. Do you tell me it shouldn't be? So the fight I was most looking forward to this past weekend, did it happen? And I find myself wondering if it's for the best. Guys, can we get an appreciation thread going? Sean Shelby and Mick Maynard, can we get them the smallest amount of credit, please? Because they sure as hell deserve it. You can back up. This is recency bias. My friend Errol Hawani taught me about that and explained to me that I have recency bias more than anyone else. And there's a truth to that. If I see something, I am very inclined to go, that was the greatest. That, that's true. That A week later, I'm saying it again. That's true. Would you go look at that pay-per-view that we just had? That got panned by you guys, right? We, we panned that one. We missed that one. I was even getting ready to watch it. I'm for sure going to go and see it, but I wasn't that excited for it. It ends up being what I believe to be the greatest pay-per-view that I've seen. I'm well aware of recency bias, but I'm making more of a point, right? It was awesome. You come into what we just saw over the weekend. It was awesome. We don't have to use those words. Those are maybe a promoter's words before it. Got nothing to sell, you guys. It's over. But what a special night it was. And Sean Shelby and Mick Maynard put those matches together. They see something. They saw it before they got these bout agreements signed. They delivered on it. I'd like to bring that to you. And there was one fight we didn't get. Are we gonna? Cowboy versus Joe Lazan. And I will tell you, it doesn't feel good to me. I don't know that I've ever used that term before. Save one. A guy was going to put on... Guy was going to be a promoter. He's going to put on an event called Brotherly Love. He was going to put all brothers against each other. Matt and Mark Hughes fight each other. The Sarah brothers fight each other. 
It was going to be headlined in main event by Ken Shamrock versus uh, Frank Shamrock. Brotherly love. Never got off the ground. Never went anywhere. And when I heard about it over the phone, didn't feel right. I don't want to see two brothers fighting each other. I don't like that. But now I have to bring that term back. I'm bringing that term back that I haven't used since the night I heard about brotherly love contest. I don't like that they're both going to be done. I don't like that it's a retirement match. I just don't. And we all understand it. Somebody had a retirement uh, match Saturday, guys, from the UFC. We don't know who yet, but somebody did. And somebody will next week as well. So when you get identified and you know it ahead of time, it's a very strong, it's a very good tool. I would encourage people to use it, but it was used here and it didn't feel right. I had a relief. I was the first to tweet that that match was off. And I'm not break news guy. If I had breaking news, I'd send it to Helwani. I'd send it to Akamoto. I'd send it to Ramondi. These guys that like to break news, that's cool for them. But I had it first. And all that happened is I got a phone call from somebody with the commission. We'll word it like that. But they were behind the scenes. They just said, Chael, I was, just, I was watching Joe Lazan walk, and then I was watching him not walk. I said, start over. I don't quite know what that means. He said, I, I, I'm sitting in the back here. He was walking. Everything was fine. He took a st- He wasn't walking anymore. Something happened just as he was, I said, did he slip? I said, no. I, you know, remember Tony Ferguson and the cord? But what happened? He was walking all of a sudden. He said, oh, he said, this is what happened. And he said, and I'm not the only one that saw it. There's a whole bunch of commission officials. It was only us. There's no media. There's no fan. There's no fighter. There's no coaches back here. But a whole bunch of members of the commission have seen this. There's no way that we can go on with this fight. I said, okay, is this officially off? And I took it straight to Helwani. Helwani said, well, I'm actually hearing something, but nobody's confirming it. So it's like, no, 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 Ariel, I put it out there. I'm giving you a scoop. Joe Lazan is not fighting, but Ariel wasn't comfortable. He, he didn't have it confirmed to this level yet. So I let you guys know. And I let you know from a standpoint of, it almost feels better, right? It almost feels better this fight's off. Let's wish Joe well. Let's get him healthy. What are we going to do about this match? Now, I can't have it both ways. I can't tell you to get behind me, and let's all be glad that that match didn't happen if we're just going to delay that match. And I also can't tell you it if I come in with the hope that two strikes, but we're going to go for a third and book this thing again. And that is what I hope that they do. And there was talk even by Dana that they might not. I don't know about a might. Dana said, no, I'm not interested. I'm not booking again. As a matter of fact, we've already offered Cowboy a different fight. He didn't like like the date. He's still available, but I don't want to make this again. Now that's pissed off. That's in the heat of the moment. That's ever being just told no. My point being, Dana would have the right to change his mind and come out and give us a new answer. But if those are our options, we're going to redo this one. We're going to schedule it for the third time. The stakes are the same which I know has been said to be a loser-league town match. I think I'm the one that's saying it right. They are both done. The winner is not going to make that walk again. The loser is not going to make the walk again. I think I'm right. Do you guys want to see them rematch that match? That match that's got these same stakes that makes our stomach sick, that we felt relief when it didn't happen, or do we want to see these two get broken up? Because to break them up would still keep the hex it would just be with somebody else and maybe not quite as favorable, right? Like these guys are a favorable matchup for each other. 
100% Joe Lazon can beat Cowboy Cerrone. 100% Cowboy can beat Lazon. Right? You guys feel that way. So what do we do? I'm, I'm just asking. As a community, what do we do? Because Dana's of the mindset of, no, I'm moving on. And he is not going to change his mind unless you guys encourage him not to. So I'm just wondering, what are you going to say? What are you going to go on Twitter when you hashtag him and say, hey, Dana, give it one more shot? Just ask him. What do you think that they should do? It was an incredible card. It was an incredible night. And you know what, guys? As much as you love that card, as much as you have the same excitement as I do when you look back on Saturday, if that fight would have taken place, you're likely to not have that same positive emotion. We would, at some point today, have to thank the memories of one of those two. We would have, at some point over here today, a funeral for the career of one of these guys, and it would have brought us down. And even though I say that, it needs to be rebooked. we got to rebook these same guys. We'll keep the hex, but we're not going to spread that anywhere else. We found our two guys. Let's get them both healthy. Off we go. That's what I think. Do you agree with me? Now, if you were one of the nerds watching the prelims, then you probably noticed the squirmish that happened between Phil Haas and Daniel Cormier. It was one of the big stories to emerge from the night. Let's break it down. One of the high moments over the card that we got to see Saturday was drama between Phil Haas and Daniel Cormier. Now, before we go any further and to try to deduce who was right or who was wrong, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to do a spoiler alert right now. Phil Haas not only was right, it was perfect. Chael, how do you get to that? How do you get to an athlete mouthing off to a legend in a suit? Well, Phil was right for being wrong. He had to be wrong first. But you want to know who looked good in that story is Phil. And I, I really hope you guys see it that way. Now, let me jump into this thing, but let me back up. I'm not positive you guys know about Phil Haas. First time I heard about Phil Haas, I did not know the word Phil and I did not know the word Haas. He was referred to as John Jones 2.0. Would you like me to tell you who called him that to me? John Jones. John Jones told me about a guy. This was on season 17 of The Ultimate Fighter. It's a period of time in my life, roughly 30 days certain The Ultimate Fighter, that I talk to John Jones all the time. I've never talked to John Jones since. I talk about John Jones and I hear John talk about me. But I will tell you this, John, so, but I'm giving you the time frame, guys, of The Ultimate Fighter 17. In case anything I say is all, I'll get you 99% of the way there, but I'm going back about 10 years. John tells me about this guy. He says, Chael, he's me 2.0. And at that point, John was mentoring him. John was coaching him. Phil, to my understanding, was just a teammate at Jackson Wink. But he was a teammate that, of course, looked at John a different way, as all young fighters would. And John saw it, and John wanted to work with him. And John and, and Phil was getting ready to do an Ultimate Fighter himself. And John told him, he's going to win the Ultimate Fighter. He's going to bust him to the UFC. This guy's going to be champion. So Phil comes to the Ultimate Fighter. I'm rather excited about that. I mean, that, that's big claim and major inside scoop by me. I doubt you guys have ever heard him called John Jones 2.0. Like, I don't think that that made media. Uh, but it was to me, and I always remember this kid, John Jones 2.0. So he comes to the Ultimate Fighter, and it didn't go great. He made it into the house and lost his very first fight, or he didn't even make it into the house. I mean, it was something like this. It was something very, very surprising for this young athlete with a level of experience who has got the stamp of approval put him by John Jones, 
who I don't remember John saying that about anybody else publicly or privately. I just don't. It stood out for me. So whatever happened with Phil happened, whether he made it through the Ultimate Fighter and quickly washed out of the UFC or did not do well enough on the Ultimate Fighter that he never got brought over to the UFC. But that was the early part of his career, and it goes all the way back that far. And he goes back on the regional circuit. When he gets on the regional circuits, it was all nerves. It was all mental with Haas. He didn't think he was ready for the UFC. Extremely common. So when he goes back on the regional tour, you guys remember when Anthony Johnson got released from the UFC and he's on the open circuit and and he's not only beating every fighter out there, he is knocking them senseless and he's having to fight all the way up at heavyweight because no one will get in there with him. So the UFC is like, dude, just come on back. I mean, do you remember that? What Phil Hawes did on the regional circuit was very reminiscent of what happened with uh, Johnson, with Rumble Johnson. So he gets back into the UFC. I'm talking about Phil Haas. Now he gets matched up here. He's had a couple of fights, guys, but he gets matched up here with Deron Wynn. Well, that one stands out for me. I'm a Deron Wynn fan, but I also know how tough he is. And a lot of you guys don't. Deron hasn't always showed it. He's still trying to learn. It's his master wrestler. He's a protege of Daniel Cormier. So now you got the protege of John Jones taking on the protege of Daniel Cormier. Like there's a lot going into that. And it's important that you hear that backstory because when... Phil starts coming at Daniel. Daniel had a very interesting response to him. He said, you didn't beat me. I thought he was talking about John Jones. I thought when Phil was getting mouthy with Daniel, that was an extension that Phil was in there speaking for John and that Daniel was having to defend himself to John's protege about John. And when Daniel said, hey, you didn't beat me, what I thought he meant is, Maybe John can come and talk to me this way, and maybe John can put me down, but you did not. I had a friend that was there, judged the card that night. He said, Chill, you got it wrong. John Jones had nothing to do with this, and if you tell the story that way, you're telling it wrong. Daniel had apparently picked Deron Wynn, the opponent of Phil Haas, or Phil was under the impression that Daniel had picked Deron Wynn. So when, when Daniel says, you didn't beat me, he was saying, you might have beat my guy, but you didn't beat me. Now, I know we're close here on verbiage, but you guys see where that intent is very different. If we're reliving a fire between Cormier and Jones, that's interesting. Particularly since when, when Jones comes back, Cormier will be announcing him. And, and if there's some kind of a problem with this, let us know now. We're not going to change it. We're going to celebrate and add that to the story. But if I am wrong, if it was just in the moment, it was about Deron win. Either way, Daniel knew how to come to a young athlete. Because guys, what, what, what would have happened if Phil hadn't been so gracious? Because don't forget guys, Phil was high. Phil was out of his mind. He was drunk. Phil was under the influence. He was intoxicated. How many ways can I say it? But he was, he was. This is a natural high. This is an endorphin and an adrenaline release that kept me in the sport for 25 years. Hardest thing in the world to do. I stayed in it just for that high. Couldn't replace it. So when I tell you that Haas deserves, first off, a little bit of understanding, he was out of his mind. He was out of his mind with excitement that he earned. So go a little bit easy on Haas. But when he came at Daniel, what if? Because Daniel didn't back away, did he? Daniel's face went real straight. Daniel did not like that. He did not like being spoke to that way by a younger athlete who he was covering while he was on the clock in the octagon of which he used to own. He didn't like it, did he? 
What if Phil would have swung on him? I mean, I'm being silly land here, but we're having a very different conversation, aren't we? We're having a very different dialogue. Daniel stepped to him with a straight place, pointed at him and said, you didn't beat me. Be Be respectful. Be respectful. Phil spoke that language. And Phil stopped. And Phil was right. Phil left the octagon. He went to the post-fight press conference where Daniel's not out. And he said it again. He said, I apologize. That is the two-time champion of the world. I was wrong. Perfect. That took character. It did. I realize this whole situation is created by Phil. I want you to realize that Phil was not of his natural state of mind. He came back to it quickly. He stood on it. He then went complete safety where he could have embarrassed. He could have been a chicken. He could have stabbed somebody in the back like a lot of people would have done. He didn't do it. He apologized. Phil was right. I appreciated it. And I hope after that story, you all do as well. Guys, summer is officially here. Why don't you let Factor help you spend less time at home in the kitchen and more time enjoying the beautiful sunny weather? Factor makes it easy for my family to eat clean 24-7 with fresh, never frozen, prepared meals that are so delicious you wouldn't believe that they're actually good for you. The Suttons are always on the go. Between family gatherings, gymnastics practice, traveling for work, and hanging out here with you guys, Factor saves us time by delivering chef-crafted meals to our doorstep, eliminating the hassle of grocery shopping and meal prep, not to mention cleanup. No dishes to wash over here. These meals have been a huge help for my wife and I. Each Factor meal arrives pre-prepared and ready to eat in two minutes. That's even faster than ordering in, and guys, it's healthier. Their registered dietitian and expert chef work hand-in-hand to create meals with nutritious ingredients. They offer vegan and veggie meals, keto meals, low-calorie options, cold-pressed juices, smoothies, energy bites, plant-based bars, extra protein, veggie sides, and more to keep you fueled and focused all day long. Head to go.factor75.com slash chael120 and use the code CHAIL120 to get $120 off. That's code CHAIL120 at go.factor75.com slash CHAIL120 for $120 off. All right, guys, let's discuss some psychology. Now, Alex Piera beat Israel Adesanya in a kickboxing match a period of of time ago, and I realize I'm stating the obvious, but the only reason I know about that is because Adesanya is the one that told me. Somebody somewhere teased Adesanya online, and Adesanya has fired back, and it's a different sport, and it's a long time ago. This really got him worked up, right? He really got emotional about it. Now, if memory serves me correctly, Alex Piera is the one who posted the clip. It was like just a picture of Adesanya laying on the canvas unconscious. And I want to say that Piera did this, if I have my timeline correct, before he was ever even in the UFC. So Piera comes in and Adesanya is instantly upset. And he's talking about that's a different sport and it's a long time ago. And Adesanya made a big thing about it. That is the point that I'm attempting to make for you. I would not know that that kickboxing match happened. I also, in all fairness to you, would not care 
when a guy comes over and he had a wrestling background, I don't care that he lost a wrestling match. Same thing goes with jujitsu, and in this case, it would care over to kickboxing, but Adesanya does. Now, when I'm talking to you about the psychology, let's fast forward to right now. It has been stated, and both of these guys are on the same card. July 2nd, International Fight Week. If Adesanya wins, and if Pierre wins, Pierre is taking on Sean Strickland, those two will then be matched up. Adesanya is talking about that. Adesanya, in many ways, it appears, is looking past Jared Cannonier. He's also got the belief in Piera that Piera is going to get past Sean Strickland. Is that a mistake? Is it a mistake for somebody as decorated and with much on the line as Izzy Adesanya to look past any opponent, in this case, Jared Cannonier? And you really can't answer that question, guys. Some athletes need absolute focus. And some athletes do their best with anything but focus. And if you look at Adesanya, it would be very hard for you and I to imagine what makes him tick. To have his level of success and for us to put ourselves in his spot and think, what would I do in those shoes? It's very difficult. Adesanya is arguably the most successful fighter in the UFC. You could put him head to head. He's going to lose to like Kamar Usman's and some of these guys that started before him and just simply have more repetitions. But Adesanya has gone through the entire division. It's to the point where after to bring guys in and bring storylines from a different sport just because it happens to motivate him to find top contenders to take him on. And I only bring that to you because while it does appear that he's looking past Cannoneer, while it does appear that while he's dismissing Piera, he has a real belief in the competition skills of Piera to the point that it looks like he's matching those two up down the road. Is that bad? And I know that most coaches and most beliefs would be yes. I can just tell you, as a coach, as an athlete who now goes and talks to competitive athletes today, I will tell them the benefits of really caring during training, of being absolutely focused during training, but on game day to try to care a little bit less, try to make it a little bit playful, and one way to do that is to take the pressure off the task at hand by looking forward to a competition that's next. It's one way to do it. Also, what I just explained to you are some of the active ingredients in every major upset sport has ever seen. Not focusing, not paying attention, watching something else. And imagine being Adesanya. I mean, really think about this, guys. Really think about being in the back. You were the last fight of the night. You were the headliner. And 25 minutes before you've got to make that walk, which is going to require all of your mental and physical capabilities, 25 minutes prior to that, in the locker room on a monitor, you see your great nemesis, Alex Piera, get his hand raised, call you out, and you know what's next. Think about that. In some cases, that's too much to bear. I've got to have my mind on what I've got to deal with, which happens to be Jared Cannonier. Oh, by the way, I'm a human being, and my mind is no longer on Jared Cannonier. A portion of my brain, call it 15%, call it 25%, is now on Alex Piera. It's now on after I beat Jared Cannonier and I grab the microphone, I must respond to what was just said about me by Alex Piera, who, by the way, is now stress-free, sitting in the audience in his street clothes and taking in my match. It's a lot. It really is. So where is Adesanya's head, guys? And, and tell me this too. 
Correct me if I'm missing this. I don't see Pierre talking a lot about Adesanya. I believe, this is off my head, but I believe that Piera is the initial person to post the photo of Adesanya in that kickboxing match laying unconscious. I'm not confident I could tell you, even in a multiple choice offering, anything else that Alex Piera has ever done. I know his managers are pushing him into a title fight. I know that his training partners, use Glover Teixeira by an example, are talking him up and pushing him into this. I know that Dana White sees something special, believes in him, and I believe has made this match that Pierre has got with Sean Strickland a number one contender's bout. But I don't remember Alex Pierre actually coming at Israel Adesanya, saying, I'm going to beat you, saying, I am next, saying, I should be the true champion. I just don't remember him doing those things. So what does that mean psychologically? I have different guesses. I think it's a very good thing for Adesanya that he has some kind of a motivation. I think it's a very good thing that Adesanya sees what's in front of him. When you are as cloaked in success and decorated in victory as is the Adesanya, what makes you get up and what makes you want to get better? Well, there's few things more helpful than having an opponent, than having a hill that you still want to climb. I'm just asking you guys, is this two ways? Is Alex Pierre out there instigating something with Adesanya that I'm not seeing? Is he out there talking about, I'm the best here and I'm willing to prove it and soon I'm going to get to you because I don't feel like he is. Am I missing that? And if he's not, why not? If we're just talking about the psychology, why is Alex Pierre, who is believed to be one win away from having the opportunity of a lifetime, why is he not demanding it more? How did he get to this position without being the one to ask for it? How did he do it with other people doing that asking for him? I think the psychology is very fascinating. And I think that Adesanya is in a very hard spot, particularly if you just close your eyes for a moment and you, you really picture yourself in the moment that I just described, which is Adesanya in the back, going to walk out last to headline an event to put up his championship. When now part of his brain is stuck on what he believes is to be his next opponent, his greater nemesis, and he's been verbally called out. It's an interesting spot. It would require a lot of toughness, and I don't mean physical, I mean mental. And it may be, we're only a couple weeks from finding out, it may be the exact scenario that Adesanya finds himself in. Now, speaking of fighters looking ahead, Sugar Sean O'Malley laid out some thoughts on what his future entails, and I gotta say, I was fascinated by it. Sugar Sean O'Malley was doing an interview and he was talking about what his short-term plan is, or what his current, might be a better way for me to say, plan is for his own career. It went something like this. I'm going to beat everybody at my weight class, I'm going to become the champion, and then I'm going to leave my weight class. I'm going to go up to 145 pounds, but before I do it, I am going to become champion here first. As a matter of fact, I have Pedro Munoz next. Pedro's ranked number 10. Get past Pedro, move into somebody higher rank, go right into a championship fight, and I'll be out of here. Guys, I could relate to that, and every athlete that you've ever seen has had that same conversation. Maybe not out loud. Sean was handling this uh, piece of media almost like a therapy session. He was telling us everything, things that he could have kept inside. I'm just here to tell you whether you like that statement by Sean or not, every single athlete has had that same conversation, just maybe not out loud. 
There is something about being surrounded by an assortment of names. See, let's take the top 10. Top 10 of every single division, when you were by yourself, you're driving in your car, you're listening to the radio, you were thinking about those people in the top 10. When you go to bed at night and you close your eyes and the whole world is quiet, quiet, you're trying to fall asleep, you're thinking about those athletes in the top 10. Everywhere you go, every practice that you go to, as you put your gloves on, as you're sparring, as you're down on your luck thinking this is going to be bad, or when you're on top of the world thinking I'm going to do great, you're thinking about those people in the top 10. And there is a relief within the idea that at some point I'm going to get away from this group. I'm going to go into another group. There is an absolute relief. And I'll tell you, I was the same way. I did an interview that my coach, Chuck Kearney, pulled me into his office the day after this came out. And this is back before the internet was the thing. This was in print in something called the Register Guard. And I told, I was a junior in college. I was a returning All-American, so I was one of the top-ranked guys in the country. But I told the paper I'm going to win the NCAA tournament this year, and I'm not coming back for my senior year. I'm going to win the Nationals, and I'm done with the sport. Now, my life would have been very different if I walked away from competition at 20 years old. I ended up walking away from competition at 42 years old, but I did mean it. And Chuck pulled me into his office. He showed me the paper, and he said, this is the wrong mindset. You're coming back. If you win it, you're going to come back. You're going to win it again. Silly conversation, right? I have a different task at hand. I have a task at hand to first qualify for the national tournament, to train, to prepare. I've got all these different things. But I was so much pressure, and I was so overwhelmed by reading these same guys' names that were in my weight class, I just wanted to get away. And I remember when I went into professional fighting, I had very similar thoughts. I'm at 185 pounds, and all I want to do is leave 185 pounds. It doesn't have anything to do with the weight cut. It doesn't have anything to do with physically how I perform it that way. I got to get away from these names. When I was a little kid, I got bit in the ass. I was wrestling at a weight class called 75 pounds. Now, no, I do not mean 175 pounds. I was wrestling at 75 pounds. I had to wrestle the same two guys every single Saturday. We'd all get through the tournament, and then it would come down to these three guys. Wherever I drove in the state, I had these same two guys. So Friday night, the day before the event, I come up with a great idea that I'm going to move up to 80 pounds. They were separated in five-pound increments. I get to the tournament. I heist my major plan. I don't tell my father. I weigh in at 80 pounds. I get back to the tournament to compete. The two guys that I was trying to get away from had the exact same idea. So now I'm at 80 pounds with the same two guys. I just remember that lesson because that's where it taught me, okay, I'm trying to sell myself on the idea that I'll do better at a different weight or I belong in a different weight, but that's when I learned. No. I'm trying to get away from the pressures and the nuances of these guys that I'm competing with. Sometimes I beat them and sometimes that they beat me. So I only bring that to you because when Sean O'Malley's talking about that, he's going to go to 145. Don't be sold that he is. By example, if somebody could wave a magic wand and they could take everybody in the top 10 at 135 pounds right now that Sean O'Malley is thinking of every single day and you all move to 145. Sean's going to be less inclined to want to go up to 145. He's not talking about the weight. He's talking about escaping these same guys that he gets questioned about, that he gets tweeted about, that he gets called out from, that he sits and trains for. It's a very interesting piece. It's a very interesting piece of the mindset of the athlete, where at some point you just want to be doing something new. You're breaking down tape, you're studying, you're having teammates and workout partners mimicking 
You're getting challenged by, and you just want something new. Just give me some fresh blood. I'll go up a weight. I'll go down a weight. I'll do whatever it takes. I can't stand these names any longer. And as I heard Sean speak about that, I don't know if I'm right. Hopefully Sean will respond to this. But I'm not positive that Sean knows at this point. I'm not positive Sean is just tired of waking 135 pounds. He thinks he'll be a bigger, stronger, better athlete at 145. If that's what it's about, then by all means, change weight classes. Or is it a mental side where I could get a relief? I could get a, a deep breath. I could get a fresh new start if I just had a new pool to compete with. It's an interesting question. Sean's going to have to look inside to give us the answer, but I hope he sees this and I hope he does give us the answer. close out today's show. Let's check in on the status of a couple of names you guys might be interested in, Jake Paul and Nate Diaz. Who's Jake Paul going to box in August? I'm highly annoyed, guys. I'm highly annoyed because this little stunt of booking Madison Square Garden, of announcing your main event, who is Jake Paul, of announcing who your co-main event is going to be, that Katie Taylor or the gal that just beat Katie Taylor, one of, one of these women are going to fight. Selling tickets, letting the date get closer and not telling us who it's going to be. You want to know why I'm annoyed? Because it's starting to work on me and I don't want it to. It's beginning to work on me. I'm paying more attention. I'm talking about it more. I'm asking other people more often, do you know who the opponent's going to be? I'm fully expecting it to be Will Flurry. I just... And betting a little bit against it because that's not a ta-da. Right? When the when the only piece that you leave out, you've got your arena, you got your main event, you got your tickets on sale, you've got your date. The only piece that you're missing is the opponent, who, by the way, no matter who it is, is going to be the B-side. And you don't have this ta-da moment, because we've already been promised Fury. Not to mention, if it is Paul versus Fury, I'm out. I will never speak of that again. That'll be my little own personal way of protesting me not getting my way. I admit that. But I don't understand it. I don't understand why it would be. I don't understand why the most coveted guy in the most coveted arena in the world, in the most coveted spot known as the main event, would be somebody who was already promised, didn't draw, didn't hype it, didn't do a good job in the media the first time, and ultimately did not show up. And I am annoyed because this is beginning to work. Now, at some point... You do got to look at what you're doing and ask yourself that very question. Is this working? And I use that. And whenever I think about Jake Paul lately, I think about Nate Diaz. Those two have not totally aligned themselves in the media. Not the way that, say, Francis and Tyson Fury have. But it does appear that Nate believes he's going to go on and box Jake. And I do understand that. Like, I do understand where that would be a big deal. Where that would be very interesting. Where I would be excited for that. And Nate appears to be willing to get in there and compete with anybody within the UFC just to exhaust his contract, just so he can be eligible to go and have the discussion about being the opponent of Jake Paul. Now, is Nate's plan working? I mean, Nate has been extremely consistent. I'm, we're going on like seven months of him saying, give me anybody, anybody you want. I'll go 55, I'll go 70, I'll go up to 85 if you want. Give me a body I need to get this done. 
is that strategy working? Because I heard him say it just earlier today. There was an interview done. I want to say he even said July or August, anybody you want. At what point does Nate need to change strategies? And in all fairness to Nate, what other strategy would you do? That seems pretty agreeable. I'm going to tell you very directly what I want, which is to fulfill what we've agreed on. On the other side of the coin, just make it happen on your... Like, I get why Nate won't let this go. I do get it. I can't think of a better way to get a fight than to come out to the public who loves you and wants to see you fight and make it very clear that you're agreeable and you're willing. I can't think of a better way to do that. It doesn't change the fact that at some point when it doesn't work, we have to ask ourselves, should we be doing something different? If so, if you're of the school of thought that yes, Nate should be doing something different, I still would like an answer. What would that be? What is it that Nate could do that's different? And we've seen Nate get aligned. We've seen Nate's name in headlines with Chemayev's in headlines. We've seen that. We've even seen Dana openly tell the public that he's interested in making that fight. I recall, though, towards the end of last year, Dana was very interested in Nick Diaz versus Chemayev. And that changes things. It really does. And you might not like this and you might not understand it, but it is very consistent. The Diaz boys have a code. And there's something within that if Nick was offered Chemayev, there's something within that where Nate's not going to step in. He's just not. I don't know that that's what's happening here. I'm left to guess. I'm purely left to guess because we're having a hard time getting clarity. So if you like Nate's approach and you think that it's reasonable, as do I, in fairness, but you don't feel that it's working, what is it that he could pivot to? It's a very interesting spot. It's a very peculiar spot. And then you wonder, is everybody telling us everything? If you're saying you're willing to fight anybody, have you actually been offered and that wasn't the case privately? We don't know. We're, we're not privy to that. And how much is it a sure thing? If Nate becomes available, that he's going to be in there with Jake. How much of that is a sure thing? What happens if Jake goes into this fight in August and the one thing none of us are considering happens does end up happening and he ends up getting beat? Is the experiment over? Is the day of Jake Paul being a main eventer at Madison Square Garden in front of sitting reigning world champions over. There was a piece on Jimmy Kimmel. It might have it might have been a few days ago. I caught it last night. Jimmy Kimmel sat down with Iron Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson said, "I'm going to fight Jake Paul. I'm willing to do it. I have one condition. It needs to be this year." I'm not sure of the expediency. I'm not sure why that matters within Mike. I'm not sure why if the calendar all of a sudden sees January 1st of, of 2023, how this just gets thrown up in smoke. But this is the one thing that Mike said. That would be an interesting proposition to confront Jake with. And we're sitting here with this ta-da, as I'm putting it. We're sitting here with this reveal that I'm telling you needs to be a big deal. And I don't think it's Fury. Everything's pointing to Fury except for the ta-da moment. That doesn't work. Is it Mike Tyson? Mike is going around. He's doing more media. Every time he does media, he finds a way to mention Jake. He only gives us one clue, which is that it must be this year. Well, Jake has an open card. He has an open slot that happens to fit all of the criteria that Mike is speaking about. And at some point, Jake, who's been way ahead of the curve in terms of marketing, at some point, he's going to come out. And he's going to tell you who his opponent is going to be. 
We know that for right now, it's not going to be Nate. We believe that it's going to be Fury, but I feel as though maybe you guys are missing that Mike appears to be available. And he appears to be willing. And he says that it's gotta be this year, and August happens to be this year. All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. And thank you to those of you who are leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts, like the one from Kurt who says, keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Kurt. I intend on doing so. And I'm going to be back on Friday. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome.